Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. What a blessing it is to be with you. I'll be honest, I, I went through yesterday thinking and today thinking, we are going to have a super small crowd tomorrow uh, with the weather and everything, but it, it is wonderful to see all of you decided to come out and, and trust the weatherman and things aren't going to be frozen when we leave and we're going to be able to get home safely. So thank you for being here. It, it's been great to worship with you this morning. We are going to continue on in our series of lessons, which is our annual theme, this idea of it's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about the world around us, it's about him. Uh, that our lives, our decisions, the way that we live, the way that we think, that it should all be focused and centered around him. Uh, he is the source of, of all of our, our blessings. He is the focus of all of our goals. And so I want to talk a little bit more about that today. If, if I were to give today its own title, it would be God Deserves Our Focus. And that's kind of hard to do because it's kind of hard to see a God who no one has ever seen. Uh, John chapter 1 verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. We know that. And we've, we've got these odd little stories through the Bible where, you know, Moses sees the glory of God passing by. Or we've got uh, Jacob who wrestles with God, although at another occasion it's called an angel. Uh, you've got all of these other, you know, Isaiah who is, who is in the throne room of God. And so you've got that. And Ezekiel sees the vision of this, this being that's on fire on top of the chariot with wheels that turn every direction and uh, all, all these different pictures. But the scripture's clear. No one has actually seen God. And one of the reasons for that is Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 very clearly states he is an invisible God. And so while we haven't seen God directly with our own human eyes, there are plenty of ways in which through scripture we see pictures of God. You start back in the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, you have a picture of God as a personal creator. Now there, we've got a story of God coming down and walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the, gar in the, cool of the day, walking in the garden with them. So there's this idea of them having this personal interaction with God of some form. But we don't know how what that was like. And, and what we do know is the way he is presented in that story is he's not just this all-powerful creator, but that he is a creator who was willing to have a personal relationship with his creation. And it's a beautiful picture of who God is and what he desires our relationship to be. You will go a little bit later in scripture, Genesis chapter 12, you've got God making promises 
He comes to Abram and he says, if you will get up and go to a land I will show you, I will do these things for you. I will do them not just for you, but I will do them for the seed, for the people who come after you, for those who will inherit your blessings. And, and much of the Old Testament is the story about how God kept his promises. That God, God did give them the land. God did give them a, a nation that they, they eventually turned into. God, God did cause all the nations or all the people of the earth to be blessed through Abraham's seed. And so he's a, a promise keeper. He's honest. He's trustworthy. You, you've got God presented when we get to the book of Exodus as this providing guide. I, I tell you, it, Nothing bothers me more about my own inabilities to be able to picture things than reading the story from the book of Exodus. Uh, just to, to be able to imagine or even live through as they did this, this pillow of cloud that moves before you during the day and a pillow of fire at night where the, always there's the light of God shining among you and that he is providing manna in the morning and that he is making sure our clothes don't wear out even though we're being punished because of our own lack of trust in him. That he provided water when they were thirsty. He provided everything, including their direction and, and the land that they were supposed to inherit and eventually provides the land to those who did trust in him through the leadership of Joshua. But that whole presentation of God being the one who, who not just keeps his promises, but he provides for them while they wait for the promises to be fulfilled. And he guides them from where they are to where they need to be in order to receive the promises. He does all of it because he's that kind of God. Later in the story, you've got God as being the powerful king he is the king over the nation. He is the one who gives the law. He gives blessings to those who keep the law. He gives curses to those who don't keep the law. He is the one who is in charge. He is the one who is protecting them. He is the one who is leading them into battle and defeating the enemies on their behalf. He is this powerful king that they end up rejecting. But it doesn't take away from all the power and authority he displayed as king. When by the time you get to, to the time of David, you've got God presented as this plan maker. He makes all of these, not just promises, but prophetic promises of this is the way all of this is going to roll out. If I were to just go ahead and write the story of the centuries to come, this is exactly how it's going to play out. He was able to give them detailed description of the changing of the nation and the battles that would happen in the changing of those nations and how all of that fit into his plan to bring his deliverer so that we could get back into that relationship with him that he created us for in the first place. These are the images of God that we have. We, we don't have an actual image of God. We have descriptions of who he is, not what he looks like. But one of the things that, that always sticks out to me is by the time, from the time of the first sin 
own in the Old Testament. God is presented as a somewhat distant and unfamiliar God. And I think that's by design. God is making a separation between himself and a failed creation, a failed people. God separates himself because of his holiness. God makes himself distinct and different than all of the people down here. And because of that, he becomes a somewhat unfamiliar God. And by unfamiliar, I mean impersonal. The reason why you have in the story of them being up on Mount Sinai, it says God was wanting to instill fear in the people. He wanted them to be scared and remember for generations to come just how scared they should be of him as their God. And what he does is he tends to interact with the people based on signs or through leaders or eventually through messengers. We call them prophets. And all of that changes when you get to the New Testament. Turn with me over to John chapter 1 verse 17. John 1 17. I want to start actually back in 16. I want to read down through 18. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God, and as at the Father's side, he has revealed him. He has revealed him. That this, this Jesus who came down, according to verse 14, in the flesh from the glory of heaven, his, his job, his function, one of the tasks he had before him was to reveal to us who God is. Chapter 14, verse 9. Again, for the sake of context, verse 8 the disciples asked a question. Philip particularly says, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. And Jesus' response is, so he says, have I been among you all this time, and you don't know me, Philip? Well, first of all, stop there and just realize the power of that statement. Show us the Father. Do you not know me yet? Have you, have you not, have we not met? Do we need to do introductions again? Do we need to go through the whole, you know, just relationship building process again? Do you not know me? Do you, have you not come to know who I am yet? And then he says, the one who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? What's Jesus revealing here? You know, you, you want to see the invisible God? Look at the visible Son. You want to see who God is and what he's about and what he looks like and, and, and how you can have a personal relationship with God? You want to see that? Then look at me, Philip. Look at me. I am that. 
I am that picture, as we mentioned already, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, talking about Jesus says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image that can be seen of a God that cannot be seen. You want to see the invisible God, then look at Jesus. That's the way this happens. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I find myself turning to this passage more and more lately. I don't know if y'all have noticed this, but for some reason I keep coming back here. It says, after giving us a long list of, of stories from the Old Testament of people who walked by faith, who acted based on what they believed, it says, therefore, since we have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When we really want to know, when we really want to follow, when we really want to obey, when we really want to be in a relationship with God, how do we do that? How do you have a relationship with an intangible and unseeable God? Look at Jesus. That's how. Go look at Jesus. Go be Jesus. Go learn about Jesus. Go keep your eyes on the one that can be seen because what he is doing is showing us the one that can't be seen. And our covenant does the same thing. John chapter 14 verse 6 we know very well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But the context of that statement is that we are supposed to follow that way, that truth, and that life, that we are supposed to go to the Father. Because the context is that, that he was asked by Thomas, you know, Lord, we don't, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know how to come where you are? Because Jesus had promised, I'm going to prepare this place for you in my Father's house. There is a room for you. There is a room that is set apart for you. Your name is on the placard outside the door. It is reserved for you. If you will just follow me, I will lead you there. That's the promise of the new covenant. And what, what I find astonishing about that is that under the old covenant, we weren't invited into God's house. Under the old covenant, we know how that worked. We've studied that. You've got this tabernacle or this temple, and only a few special people who have been purified and made holy can even come and offer service in those locations. And then only one person alive is allowed to go into the most holy place where God's presence was supposed to be felt. Only one. Not the, the, the common disciple of, of God was not allowed access to God himself. And we are invited into his home. Not just into a place of service, but a place of existence. We are invited to come and move in to a room that has our name on it. 
We have a place prepared for us. That's a promise we are given as a part of our new covenant. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You hear that? God no longer lives on the other side of the veil. The veil has been torn in two. The curtain has been ripped apart. There's no longer a barrier between us and God. If we are in a relationship with God, we have full access to a God who has invited us home. That, that's amazing. And all this relates back to this idea of keeping our eyes on God and, and keeping our focus on God because God has eliminated the barriers that allow us to not know him. God has taken away the barriers. God has said, I want nothing to stand between, between me and you. Are we willing? Are we, are we willing to accept that? Are we willing to enjoy that kind of unhindered relationship? Are we willing to really appreciate and grab a hold of and love and honor and focus on a God who has invited us to be in his presence? I hope so. But honestly, most of the world isn't. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where, where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Here's what I want you to see. You want to know how to keep your eyes on the invisible God? Look at Jesus on the cross. Look at Jesus on the cross. That is such a strange concept to us because when we think of the idea of God, I think oftentimes we think in Old Testament terms. 
We want to think of a God of strength and power and might and majesty. We want to think of a God who can display uh, his ability to overcome any obstacle. We want to think of a God who reveals himself in thunder and lightning and a voice out of heaven. And what Paul tells us here is the way we need to think of God is Jesus on the cross. That's the picture of God we need to focus on. Jesus on the cross. You see, the problem is what we often do is we want to define God through our ideals and we wonder why God doesn't measure up to that because God never intended to. Turn with me, hold your spot here in 1 Corinthians and turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. There's a well-known passage of scripture here that I think puts things in perspective for us. Jeremiah chapter 9, and I want to read verse 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. And the strong person should not boast in his strength. And the wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. We have a habit of placing value in all the wrong places. We like, we like to value those who are smart. Those who just have, they have a great intelligence, they're, they're oh man, the, the way they think and, and their, their ingenuity and the way that they're able to invent things or figure out problems or just the, the amount of knowledge that they have. Oh, it's just incredible to see how brilliant those men and women are. I, I, there are so many giants in my life that I've looked at over the years that I've admired because of their ability to, to just not just comprehend difficult things, but then explain difficult things in a way that my very not difficult brain can understand it. And, and just their ability to, to take information and boil it down to the nuts and bolts and be able to share that with me. Oh, I just... I'm just, oh, I'm amazed by it. I'm amazed by their, their recall, the way they can just remember things, remember names. You know, that's a lost art in our world today, remembering names. And you, you find somebody who able, who's able to remember your name, and you're just, you're baffled by that. I remember as a gentleman when we lived in Memphis, and he came and he visited and, uh, and I had a habit in Memphis, whenever we'd have a visitor, I'd write down their name and, you know, I'd have them fill out a card. And I might make a few notes on the card after services so I could kind of remember who the people were. And, and he was gone for like four months. He was traveling for, for business. He worked uh, for the airlines. And, and when he, he came back four months later, I remembered his name. He placed membership the next week because I remembered his name. That, that, 
It was a rare occasion, by the way. That is not normal for me, but it, it happened in that case. And, and, and it was one of those things of, he was fascinated by that. We're that way. We, we, we value intelligence and academia and wisdom. Or we value in our culture the, the, the physical abilities of other people, that the, the, you know, how fast they are, how strong they are, how skinny they are, how good-looking they are, how, how put together they look. And, and we see the way that they look and the way that they, their, their abilities physically, and we're, just, we're amazed by that. Why we can have a culture that, that basically functions around the concept of football, we are amazed by just what those men are able to go out there and just take a beating week after week after week and go out there and win games. And we're just amazed at just uh, what, a, what a great, the, the ingenuity and, and intelligence of, of the coach and putting together all those plays and the, the men who are able to go out there and get those things done. It's why we love the Olympics. And we look at people like Simone Biles and other gymnasts who are able to do things we would never in our wildest imagination be able to do and, and, and be fascinated by that. Or, or we value wealth. Those, those people, you know, it's kind of a, a, a cliche these days that oftentimes in churches, the men who are chosen to be elders are the ones with the most money. And, and, and it's because that's valued by the common person. And so they're the ones who are looked up to because of their uh, money. And, and therefore, uh, that, uh, several elders are here looking at me like, that ain't the case here. So, uh, I mean, that, that, that is, but it is in a lot of places. We think because somebody has money, then, then they must have life put together. And because we value that in others, we tend to pursue those things ourselves. And notice what God says here. Stop that. Don't boast in wisdom. Don't boast in strength. Don't boast in wealth. There is only one thing you should be boasting about. It's boast that you know me. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And part of knowing God is knowing what God values. And he says it right here. The things he values are, are, are not about any sort of earthly pursuit, but it's about pursuing the things of, that, that have spiritual significance. So we need to be those who are willing to know God. Go back to my original point is we need to recognize that what God values is not the same thing the world has taught us to value. God doesn't value wisdom. I mean, oh, we already read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. So what wisdom can we have that would impress God if God views all of our wisdom as mere foolishness? Instead, we need to seek out the wisdom of God. Seek out the things that he has for us. 
Back in 1 Corinthians, I want to read chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. That's all that matters. His oratory skills, his delivery uh, of of any message, his, his wisdom didn't matter. What mattered was the message of Jesus on the cross. That's what mattered. You know why that's the message that mattered? It's because seeing Jesus on the cross is the clearest picture of seeing a God who loves and redeems us. It is the clearest picture of who God is. And when you keep your eyes on Jesus on the cross, that picture, Jesus hanging there, bleeding for our sin, establishing a covenant by which we can have hope, that foolishness of God displayed publicly in humiliation, that's what makes the rest of life make sense. We suffer We go through difficulties. We face and fight temptation. Uh, We we have setbacks in some way that that cause us to get frustrated with life in general. And and we're tired of living here and we're tired of going through all this mess. Those answers are found on the cross. Or maybe it's the opposite. Well, we're, so, we're, we're joyful and there's lots of pleasure in life and, and, and we're enjoying life and things are good. Those are mere glimpses of the glory and pleasure that exist because Jesus hung on the cross. It doesn't matter if we're facing hardship or success. The answer to life is Jesus on the cross. And we forget that. We take our eyes off of that and we put them in the mirror on ourselves or we put them on how difficult life is and how frustrated we are or we put them on all of the things we want that we don't have or we put them on just how great life is and how joyous it is and oh man, things are just good and I don't have to worry about anything or pursue any sort of betterment or improvement or or diligence in making my life more about God. We, We have all of these distractions that take our eyes off of Jesus on the cross and thereby take our eyes off of God and then we wonder why things went wrong. I'm going to say this as bluntly and boldly as I know to say it because this is foundational for everything we're going to cover in this series of lessons for the year. If we don't focus on God then honestly we've really lost our focus on everything. Nothing else in this world has purpose or joy or satisfaction or any good for us whatsoever if we don't first have Jesus on the cross in front of our face. So we need to be thinking about God. We need to be focusing on him. And it doesn't matter what distraction it is that's trying to pull our attention away. Recognize, no, if I take my eyes off of God, nothing else works. Nothing else makes sense. Nothing else has a purpose. Nothing else is worth it. But if I keep my eyes on God, 
everything now makes sense and everything has a clear purpose. That's why we can say in this series of lessons, it's all about him, not about us. And I, I, hope, I hope you'll see that with me as we go through these lessons. I hope you'll recognize if we just keep our eyes on him, everything else becomes so much clearer and better. Uh, the, the bad becomes bearable and the good becomes focused on something better if we just focus on him. We offer an invitation every Sunday, every single one. We offer the opportunity for somebody who's ready to come and be baptized into Christ. Or we offer the opportunity for somebody who's struggling to come and share their struggles with a congregation that will love on them and pray for them and help them get directed back to God's path, to get their eyes back on God. We offer an invitation that if there's some great thing that's happened in your life, you can share it with the congregation who will rejoice with you, just like they will weep with you when you weep. And our elders remind us often that that's not just here. Like you can, you can seek to be saved, whether it be at the end of a service or whether it be during the week, anytime. If, if you're ready to be saved, we want you to be saved. If you're ready to have your sins washed away, we want you to do it. We don't want you to hesitate. We want you to do it because you want to serve him. And, and if you need prayers, that, that's not something you have to walk down the aisle and come sit on the front seat for. You can meet with the elders afterwards. You can meet with any of us. We'll all pray and rejoice and, and weep and do those things because we're family. You're not just family for two hours on a Sunday or three hours on a Sunday and an hour on Wednesday night. But I, I do want to at least offer the invitation this way. Yeah, you can do it anytime you want. But if you're doing it anytime you want, you're still serving you. What I would, what I would urge you to do is as soon as you know you're ready to be baptized into Christ or you know you need prayers, you know you need help, seek it then. Not later when it's easy on you, but then because God wants you to have the help you need. And so if you need to be baptized into Christ, let's do it today. You need prayers, let's pray for you today. If we can help you in some way, please come forward and let us know how as we stand and sing this song. Hosanna, you're my king. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again and we pray God's blessings for you.